I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this evening to Psalm chapter 8. And while you turn to Psalm 8, I'd ask that you maybe hold your thumb there in Psalm 8 and also turn uh, to Hebrews chapter 2 as well. We're going to read both of these uh, passages together in tandem. We'll begin with Psalm chapter 8 and then make our way to Hebrews chapter 2. We're doing this uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, perhaps the most important reason is that Psalm 8 has a number of difficulties with which we are confronted. And fortunately, the book of Hebrews gives us the cheat sheet on how we're to interpret certain portions of this passage. You must think of the New Testament in certain ways. If you remember in high school how you had a math textbook, and in the back of the textbook you would be given the answers to the odd problems. So you could look back and check to make sure your work is done properly to help you in the exercise of doing these mathematical equations. Well, the New Testament is much like that. It helps us read the Old Testament aright. Because the New Testament always appropriates the Old Testament within its proper context. So as we read Psalm 8, let's give attention to uh, what are, in fact, some very deep waters. Psalm chapter 8, to the choir master according to the Gatith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. The Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now turning briefly to Hebrews chapter 2, here we have the uh, unnamed preacher speaking of the excellency of the Lord Jesus Christ, how here we have the son of Adam, the son of Abraham, the son of David, uh, who is much greater than the angels. We'll read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are now speaking. That has been testified somewhere. Of course, it's somewhere being Psalm 8. When is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And now he begins to uh, give an explanation of this particular passage. Again, this is our cheat sheet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that is, to Christ, he left nothing outside of Christ's control. And at the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while 
was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. It's the first time, by the way, that Jesus is used here in the book of Hebrews, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is God's word. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word. And as we consider this song that on uh, the surface seems so simple, uh, as we uh, dip our toes into the water, we ask that you would help lead us into the depths of the riches that are found in our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Remember last Thanksgiving, uh, I had just recently moved out here, and me and my dad decided that it was uh, time to take a trip down to see the Redwoods. We have heard uh, many stories about the greatness of the Redwoods. We've seen pictures, thought they looked pretty, have heard some pretty awesome things, and decided it was, in fact, time uh, to see what they looked like in person. I remember as we were making our way down, we made it uh, to Brookings uh, on a particular, uh, I believe it was a Wednesday evening. We got up early Thursday morning on Thanksgiving, and we decided to drive down across the line just a few miles into California. We're driving along. We're looking at these big trees. We're going, are these the redwoods? I'm not sure. Maybe we thought that they would be bigger. We keep driving and driving, and then finally we turn a corner. And there was no doubt in our minds that we had not been seeing the redwoods like we thought we had. Uh, But now, what stands before us kind of knocked the air out of us. I think it's one thing to be shown a picture of something that is majestic. It is another thing to be confronted with it. I think the same is true for the Rockies. I remember in 2014, the very first time I made my way to the Rockies, went on a road trip for a, a week-long hiking uh, venture through the Rockies. Um, I say hiking. I, anyways, another story. But you, you end up, when you, when you stand before, you know, the, the Redwoods or the Rockies or uh, these 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 portions of creation and makes you feel so small. It's overpowering. You go camping out in eastern Oregon and you look in the night sky and you see all the, star, all the stars and, and you're overwhelmed with a sense of wonder. And you know, C.S. Lewis had a particular word for such awe that nature evokes such objective beauty and dignity, uh, something that he called sublime. Scripture has a similar word for such things, and that is majestic. It's a word that characterizes something that is stately. It's a picture of strength, of power, dignity, and beauty. It is something that takes your breath away. Well, in this particular psalm, this evening, the psalmist contemplates one thing, and it's majestic nature, and that is the majesty of God's name, manifested in the world in both creation and in redemption. I'd like us to consider this psalm uh, from two particular vantage points. First, we'll consider um, what we might call rebellion in verses 1 and 2, and then secondly, the matter of redemption in verses 3 to 9. 
So rebellion in verses 1 and 2 and redemption in verses 3 to 9. Psalm 8 is often called a creation hymn, and I think on first glance it's obvious why this is the case. Here there's this, uh, this uh, litany of descriptive terms that take our attention all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. The description of the divine artistry of the sun, the moon, and the stars, the creation of the heavens and the earth, the dominion of man as he is established on that sixth day of creation and given uh, authority and power over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beast of the field, all these things. This is uh, replete with imagery. Uh, one uh, particular older commentator referred to this particular psalm as Genesis 1 turned into a prayer. The psalmist begins and ends on the same note as he contemplates the majesty of God. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see that in verses 1 and in verse 9. It is an envelope of praise. That everything that we see uh, before us is intended to direct our gaze to the one who is invisible and yet has left an indelible fingerprint on his creation that directs our attention to him. And in particular, there is the contemplation of praise at the name of God. It's really what brings us to the heart of worship, isn't it? And yet, perhaps we might think, what does it mean to consider the majesty of God's name? I'm going to recall Moses when he stood atop Mount Sinai. Remember this in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Moses says, O oh Lord, he says, I have just but one request and one request only. Show me your glory. What is the Lord's response? No man could see me and live. Sorry, Moses. I can't do it. But I will do this, however. I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And so the Lord descends shrouded in a cloud where Moses is only able to see the form, as it, were, as it were, of the Lord. And the Lord stands before Moses and proclaims the name of the Lord. And he passes before Moses and proclaims the name once more, saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Moses is unable to see the Lord, but the proclamation of the name signifies all that the Lord is in his character and being. And so when the psalmist here exalts in the name of the Lord, he praises the invisible God and all that the name of God signifies. That this God who is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable is one who is unchangeable in his being, his wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Like the redwoods 
of California, the Rockies, in Colorado. This is not a, a, a certain flippancy. This is not simply a, a sentimental feature. Here, uh, the psalmist contemplates the majesty of God's name and it takes his breath away. As David proclaims, how majestic is the name of God. O Lord, our Lord. You see here in the second part of verse 1, the ESV puts it like this, you have set your glory above the heavens. I think what's striking, and this is typically how most translations have it, but in the Hebrew, the verb there is actually not in what we call the indicative. There's a verb in the imperative. And I was reading one uh, Hebrew commentator this week, and uh, he, uh, David Alter, he's a kind of a, a, a secular Jew, has a really nice translation of the Psalter and has all these footnotes. And he, and he gets to this particular verse in the psalm and he says, it doesn't make sense for this to take place in the imperative. And so he puts it in the indicative. Quite literally what the Hebrew reads is, how majestic, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, concerning this name, establish your majesty above the heavens. Here the psalmist makes a petition before the Lord. As we'll see in verse 2, the psalmist, as it were, longs to see the name of God restored to its rightful place in the face of his adversaries. We might call this the original MAGA doctrine. Make Adonai's name great again. Not that the Lord's name has failed to be great but rather there is the petition that, O oh Lord, reassert your greatness in the face of your foes. And so David ponders his own petition. How is it that the maker of heaven and earth makes his great name known in the heavens? And here we find in verse 2 that the Lord reasserts his majesty, his majestic name through unlikely instruments. Even as David will go through and, and talk about how it is that the, uh, the, the magnificent features of creation make him to consider his own smallness. Here in verse 2, it is not through the resplendent redwoods of California or the purple mountain majesties of Colorado that the Lord reasserts his majesty in the heavens. Rather, he reasserts such majesty, the majesty of his name, through the songs of children. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. That word there for strength is a, a citadel. It's a fortress. I would imagine the particular scenario that the, the enemies of the Lord have assembled and have taken counsel together to overthrow the Lord of heaven and earth. And so they surround Zion. And here we have a picture not just of the earthly foes of the Lord God Almighty, but even the supernatural adversaries. There are hints that we find of this in the Hebrew text, that these forces are dark, malevolent forces as well as human enemies. If you look down, for instance, in verse 8, it speaks of all those things that pass along the paths of the seas, it's not simply talking about sea bass here. This is language that you see reflective in the rest of the Psalter that includes the sea monsters of the deep, including the great Leviathan of Psalm 104 in the book of Job, which according to the prophet Isaiah 
is none other than the great serpent himself, the dragon, Satan. Even in Calvin's commentary on the Psalms, he notes that the old Latin word here for the enemy and the avenger in verse 2 is cyclops. It's the monsters. The Lord establishes his strength against the monsters through the songs of little children. Here the great monsters of the sea have allied themselves in a cosmic battle with the hordes of hell against uh, Israel to make war against God and to bring the name of God into disrepute. And in the face of such ferocious power is the Lord of heaven and earth able to withstand the attack? Or will his name be drug through the mud? And what the psalmist says is the Lord demonstrates his power in such a way that he makes the songs of children his citadel. Calvin puts it like this in his commentary, that God in mockery brings into the field of battle against them the mouths of babies. Mouths which have sufficient strength to lay God's enemies to the dust. Here God manifests his power in weakness to shame the strong. Here God displays his wisdom through foolishness to shame the wise. A pattern that we see all throughout Scripture culminating in the folly of the cross. That the foolishness of God is displayed at the cross to show that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisest sage of men. So on account of his foes, he has established a citadel through the mouths of infants to put an end to the enemy's advance. What majesty. This is what the psalmist is contemplating, the majesty of God. How is it that the Lord will reassert his majestic name in the midst of a fallen and rebellious world? And yet more than that, we see that the Lord reestablishes his dominion, as it were, through the humiliation of the Son of Man and the work of redemption. We see this here in verses 3 to 9. Here the psalmist contemplates the majesty of God, and as he does so, he considers God's handiwork in creation. He describes the Lord as a divine artist who sets the sun, the moon, and the stars in their place, much as a, uh, a father hangs a mobile in a baby crib. From the Lord's perspective, it is simple. It's something he does with the work of his fingers. And it's true that elsewhere the scriptures describe these heavenly planets as the governors of the day and the night. These are powerful uh, pieces of creation, and yet as powerful as they are, and as uh, the nations around Israel worship the sun and the moon and the stars as the great gods of creation, David reminds those who contemplate this psalm that as great as those things are, they are but the Lord's own handiwork. It's a reflection of the divine artistry of one who is, in fact, greater. You see here in verse 3, they are your heavens. 
What a great disservice it is to look at the sky, to devote one's entire attention, for instance, to the field of astronomy, and yet to deny that this is the divine handiwork of the Lord God Almighty. David describes this as a beautiful finger painting, majestic in their own right, but in pales in comparison to the one who is invisible. Nevertheless, David says, even when I contemplate these works of yours, you whom heaven and earth cannot contain, it makes me feel so small. Who am I? There's a certain poetic wordplay that's going on here in the Hebrew, what is man, Zakhar, that you would remember Zakhar, him. It's a word pun of sorts. What is man that you would care for him? This is the language of the, the tender concern and care of a gentle shepherd. It's the same language that's actually uh, used to describe a concerned ch- uh, shepherd in the book of Zechariah. Here is God who tends for and cares for his creation even in spite of man's rebellion. See, this isn't simply David contemplating creation in its original pristine estate. This is contemplating creation in light of the fall. Uh, the psalmist has already talked about God's adversaries and foes. And here he talks about God's concern for both man and the son of man. This is a concern that spans generations. Why would you show such tender concern for those who spit in your face? See, David meditates here on God not just as the creator of heaven and earth, but also as the provider of heaven and earth for all that is needed as he shows concern for man who has fallen from his, from his first estate. And Adam, as he has allied himself with the Lord's adversaries. Again, the language in the last half of the psalm gushes with echoes of the first creation of Genesis chapter 1. Remember Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 where the Lord says to himself reflectively let us make mankind in our image and our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds, the heavens, the livestock, and all the earth. And we see David reflecting on this great truth. And yet for those of us who know the story of Genesis, we know how that story continues that it does not end with Adam asserting his dominance over creation, but just the opposite. The Lord commands Adam and Eve to fill the earth and to subdue it as God's right-hand man, as it were, God's vice regent over all, with a dominion that is comprehensive in scope as he is to put all things, as it were, under his feet. Despite that great commission. Adam fails in his duty, and he rebels. He does not crush the serpent under his feet. Rather, he capitulates to the devil's schemes with eyes wide open. Again, we know that the psalm recognizes the reality of the fall because it's already made mention of God's own adversaries. So the curse against Adam is already clear. Adam, the first Adam, does not establish dominion. He has, in fact, forfeited that dominion. Paradise has been lost. Adam was exiled from the garden. Now he must labor by the sweat of his brow. Instead of fruit, thorns and thistles would prevail. 
Here is a man who has capitulated to the voice of his wife who was deceived, but Adam was not. And so now enmity as part of the curse of the fall arises and confounds that marital relationship. Adam's sin consisted in eating a piece of forbidden fruit, but one single generation later that sin has compounded into an act of fratricide as Cain slaughters his own innocent brother Abel in the field. And yet David is seen here staring at the stars, reflecting on the scope of human history and saying, what is man that you would care for something so fragile and frail? Who is man that you would care for him? One who reflects such dignity and such terror. Dignity as one who is created to bear the image of the living God in such terror as he has now hauled that name of God through the mud. He now bears that name in vain. I think it helps us make sense of David's plea in verse 1. Establish your majesty above the heavens. Restore order to what has been lost through Adam. And it's only here that I think we can even begin to make sense of what's going on in verse 5. Where the psalmist then says, Well, you have made him... Well, who's him? You've made him a little lower than the Elohim. It's the Hebrew word there. It's a number of ways in which that word could be translated. It's translated a number of other places as one of the names of God. It can be translated as gods in the plural. It can be translated as angels elsewhere or any other number of heavenly beings. And depending upon which translation you have, you're going to find one word or another given here in Psalm 8. If you're using the King James, it's angels. If you're using the New American Standard, it is God. If you are using the ESV, it is heavenly beings. Which one should we follow as these are all, I think, fairly good modern English translations? But before we get to that question as who is it that this unnamed individual is made lower than, we must first ask ourselves, who is the him that is being made lower than the Elohim? This is a verse that is fraught with so much difficulty, and it's one of the reasons why we immediately turn to Hebrews chapter 2 to help get us out of the quagmire real quick. I think the first thing we should notice is that David cannot be talking about Adam in particular because Genesis has already made it clear that Adam has forfeited that dominion. It was something that was lost in the sin. It's why he was kicked out of the garden. It's why thorns and thistles now prevail. He's one who has not established dominance on the earth, as it were. And also, this can't be spoken of as mankind in general. Because we see that so much of the host of humanity has rebelled against God himself. So whoever this hymn is has to be a reference to a specific son of Adam. Well then, whoever this son of man is, we then ask, what is it that the psalmist is saying? It says, you have made this son of man a little lower than the Elohim. Well, without getting too bogged down in the weeds, I told you we're getting to the deep end of the pool and getting into this psalm this evening. Hebrews chapter 2 gives us the answer. 
Here we are to translate Elohim as angels. Why? Because that's how Hebrews 2 translates it. You have made him a little lower than the angels. And yet it also makes an important distinction that you see in the Hebrew as well. That you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. What is it that David is contemplating? Hebrews 2 tells us. It keys us into the mystery. See, in the Old Testament, there are so many things, not just in the prophets, but in the Psalms themselves that are mysterious to us. Not mysterious in the sense of a mystery novel who is, uh, you know, the, the, the whodunit. But when we hear the word mystery, particularly as uh, uh, David's been preaching through the book of Daniel, David, uh, Daniel uh, pops in uh, and hones in on this uh, rather importantly early on in his prophecies. A mystery is something that was once hidden, but is now revealed. That the New Testament pulls back the curtain and says the mystery hidden long before all ages is the mystery concerning the Messiah. First Peter chapter 1, that even the prophets of old, as they spoke under inspiration of the Spirit, it was the Spirit of Christ speaking through them concerning the person and work of Christ. And yet it says that even these prophets inquired into what it is that they themselves were prophesying. They would utter the word of the Lord and they go, I don't know what this means. And they would spend time contemplating. It was something that even angels longed to look into. And I think Psalm 8 verse 5 is one of those particular situations where so many ancient commentators prior to the arrival of Christ go, what does this mean? Here Hebrews chapter 2 says this. It's a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. It was an individual, one born of man, one who was not an angel, but who was for a little while made lower than the angels. What's the implication that this figure uh, somehow predates uh, the creation of the angelic race and is superior to the angels, yet he himself is a son of man? How can these things be? And this is what Hebrews chapter 2 is so concerned with, to point out in a very clear way that the referent point here in verse 5 is not the first Adam, but the last. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in compact form, the psalmist, under inspiration of the Spirit, foretells of the humiliation that the son of Adam must undergo to regain what the first Adam had, in fact, lost. And if we were to situate this psalm in the broader context of the Psalter and in the rest of the Old Testament, we see how this begins to make more sense. Remember the Lord's own promise to, to Adam and Eve that there will be a son of the woman who will crush the serpent under his feet. You keep reading the book of Genesis and it makes it to Abraham, one of the descendants of Adam and Eve. And now that promise is given a, a, a further enhancement. It's an organic growth. Well, that promise given to Abraham is that from this particular seed, Singular, as Paul makes that point in Galatians chapter 3, from this seed of the woman would come one who would triumph over the gates of his enemies, a king. 
You go fast forward down the line to David himself, a descendant of Abraham. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's the great promise given to David that one of your sons will sit on the throne forever. Not just reign for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, but of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Isaiah chapter 7, 9, and 11. This particular psalm speaks of the work of the Messiah. So that for a little while, God made cries to himself from eternity past, was greater than the angels because he is of the same substance of the Father. However, for just a little while, was made lower than the angels. That when the fullness of the time had come, Paul writes, God sent forth his son being born of a woman, being born under the law, so that we, though children of wrath by nature, might receive the adoption as sons by grace. That our adoption as sons was secured through the humiliation of Christ. What a humiliation it is to, to be the maker of heaven and earth and now to be born in a cattle stall. To be born under the law. To bear the curse of humanity. To be uh, prosecuted and falsely accused. To, to, to suffer maliciously at the hands of a puppet king, Herod. To be mistreated by a know-nothing governor of Rome, of Palestine, Pontius Pilate. But the one who made the angels was now for a time made lower than the angels as he enters into his estate of humiliation. But Hebrews, or I'm sorry, Psalm 8 verses 5 gives way to verse 6, that though he was for a little while made lower than the angels, he has now entered into his estate of exaltation, being crowned with glory and honor. Psalm 8 speaks to the suffering and glory of the Messiah, who now takes his seat of prominence, the heavenly throne, and is given dominion over all creation, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and even the sea monsters of the deep. Order is restored, not through mankind asserting dominance, but through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one true Son of Man. In other words, David attests in the psalm to the dominion that is secured through Christ over heaven and earth. As Christ is the son of David, David's greater son who would inherit an ever-expanding kingdom. What is it that Jesus says upon his resurrection at the end of uh, uh, Matthew's gospel? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the same picture from a different vantage point of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. of The Son of Man standing before the Ancient of Days, ascending to heaven and receiving His everlasting throne. Here, the Son of Man has fulfilled the mandate of Genesis 1. This is why our great commission as the church is found in Matthew chapter 28, not Genesis chapter 1. 
the command to the church in being fruitful and multiplying is that of going and making the great name of Christ known. That as you go, you are to teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Why? Because Christ has been given dominion over heaven and over earth. This is exactly how Hebrews 2 puts it. The preacher of Hebrews cites Psalm 8 to clarify what it is that the psalmist is speaking about. To help get us out of the muck and the mire because Psalm 8 is deep waters. But I want you to notice what it is that the psalmist, uh, or that, that the author of Hebrews says here in Hebrews 2.5. It's not to angels, but to Christ that God subjected this world. Is that what it says? No. It's not to the angels, but to Christ that God subjected the world to come. According to the author of Hebrews, Psalm 8 is not about the, the first creation as much as it is about the new creation that is ushered in through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his commentary on the Psalms, the 19th century Scottish Presbyterian Andrew Bonar says this. He says, it has been said this Psalm, Psalm 8, might be called uh, Genesis 1 turned into a prayer. But it is more truly the Genesis 1 of the new earth. Psalm 8 is a hymn of the new creation, according to Hebrews chapter 2, understood in its own terms. Seems like such a simple psalm, doesn't it? But it packs a punch. See, the psalmist says, greater the works of the Lord, they're studied by all who delight in him. Might I suggest that Psalm 8 is the Mount Everest of inspired poetry. David is not merely here contemplating the first act of creation, but rather the new creation that is secured by the humiliation and exaltation of his Son and his Lord. Think of this, Matthew chapter 21, uh, Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem on his final week as he is about to be betrayed, and he enters the temple and he turns the tables. He kicks out the money lenders, and he begins to heal the blind, the lame, and the mute. And what do the children in the temple begin to do? It says the children begin to sing. Hosanna to the son of David. And the scribes and the Pharisees get furious. They turn to Jesus and say, do you hear what they are saying? Do you hear what they're doing as you are healing the blind and the lame here in the temple? They're calling you the son of David and singing Hosanna and praise to you. What is Jesus' response to them? This is Matthew chapter 21, verse 16. He says, have you never read Psalm chapter 8? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you've prepared praise that the Lord has established his citadel through the songs of children that sing out and recognize that salvation comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see here in Matthew's gospel, that the children's praise songs have put to shame the temple scribes that the foolishness of God has trumped the religious sage of the age, and that the folly of the cross has inaugurated a world of life everlasting. O Lord, our Lord, establish your majesty above 
the heavens. Make your name great again. Christ asks a similar prayer. And the Lord, the Father, on high responds from heaven, I will and I will do it again. As it is accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ. See here, the psalmist calls upon us to consider the majesty of God's name. Tracing his fingerprints, as it were, through the host of creation as we see the character imprinted of the invisible God as it is reflected in the divine handiwork. And what we see is that five times in Scripture, the finger of God is attested, as it were. Not that God actually has fingers. It is a, what we call an anthropomorphism. It's not that God has fingers or hands or wings or eyes, but it is to communicate to us as a nursing mother to a baby child in goo-goo-ga-ga speak what it is that is actually transpiring. And in Scripture, five times the finger of God is said to be put on display. The first is seen here in the work of creation. But the finger The finger of God is traced through considering the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the work of heaven and earth. And secondly, it's seen not just in God's creative work, but in his redemptive power when he ushers ten judgments on Pharaoh's household and delivers Israel from slavery. If you recall in Exodus chapter 8, Pharaoh's magicians try to convince Pharaoh to let Israel go, and what is it that they say? This is the finger of God. We recognize it. Pharaoh, why won't you? Third time it's mentioned in Scripture, God's legislative act, when his finger is said to inscribe his moral law on tablets of stone in Exodus chapter 31. Fourth time, when Christ speaking to the crowd says, it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demonic hordes. That Christ's exorcisms in his earthly ministry signify that the, the work of God is coming in redemptive power on par with the work of creation and the work of Israel's redemption. The last time, John chapter 8, as the Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery before Jesus and say, what is it that we were to do? What is it that Jesus does? says that he stoops down and he takes his finger and he begins to write in the sand. And then, in an act that only God himself can do, he pardons the woman and sends the rest of the crowds away in shame. My desire tonight as we consider this particular psalm is to re-endow that word majestic with a sense of wonder, the sense of wonder that it deserves. That word majesty is used so much in Scripture to speak of the majestic mountains, uh, the cedars, the trees, the noblemen decked to the guild in battle array. But here it speaks of the majesty of God's name and shows the gravity that God's name deserves. And as we consider the finger of God in the work of creation and redemption, all of these features should leave us breathless. Much as we would as we were to stand before the Redwoods or the Rockies. 
That as we consider what it means that God has created the heaven and the earth, or just consider what it means that God has given us His law, or what it means that God has, has triumphed over Satan, has reestablished order and dominion in heaven on earth as the exalted God-man, or that here the God of heaven and earth freely forgives sin, even when we're caught in the act, that this should lead us to, with the psalmist say, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we ask that you would instill in us a sense of the majesty of your name as it has been revealed to us in your word and in creation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.